Welcome once again to our Wednesday afternoon series of seminars on security. This week's speaker is a visitor, a guest of ours from Intel. John Richardson has spent the last nine years at Intel and is currently serving as the manager of trusted networking architectures. Uh, I neglected to ask him if there is also a manager of untrusted networking architectures, but that may be part of the topic of his talk. Uh, please join me in welcoming John as he talks to us about evolving the internet. John? Thanks, Gene. Good afternoon. One of the first things I learned about security is that it is all based on context. So what I want to talk to you today about is not the security details of the internet, but more about what's going on in the internet, how it's changing, what are some of the interesting technologies that we see coming along, and how we think they're going to impact the future version of what the internet will be. I don't predict that today's internet is what we will see even two to three years from now. Part of what I'm going to do is touch on a bunch of different topics. This is going to surf the waves, if you will, just the tops of the waves. I'll tell you about some of the interesting trends we're seeing, why we think they're interesting, and maybe we'll dive in a little bit into the implications of various pieces here. So why don't we get into it. The first question is, how big a deal is the internet? And I've stolen liberally here from Peter Drucker. <laughs> He basically says it changes everything. We hear about it all the time, that's true, we all touch on it, and those of us who are technology oriented think it's a really big deal. But in fact, it seems to be changing all of the quote mundane stuff, the everyday stuff. The way people interact with each other, the social aspects of the internet. The way that people do business, not only electronic commerce in a business to consumer sense, but electronic business in a business to business sense. The entire supply chain is getting automated. And so I think that this is one of those arenas we can't predict what it's going to mean. We can't say, I know what the answer is going to be. But what we can do is look at some of the attributes of the answer and maybe make some predictions about what will be the strengths and weaknesses of how things move forward. So what I did was I grabbed some of today's key trends in the internet space. We talk a little bit about the growth. No internet talk is complete without some statistics, so I made up a bunch of statistics. Well, I borrowed statistics from various places. I also want to talk about the myths of the internet, how you might believe that you are being connected from point A to point B and how that probably isn't actually true. I want to talk about something we've been calling the proactive trusted internet. Proactive in the sense that it anticipates the needs of the applications and the people using them. And trusted not only in the security sense, but in the robustness sense. There are now a tremendous number of companies that are totally dependent on the internet working for them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they lose millions and millions of dollars for every hour that the internet is down or at least their connection to their customers is down. We'll talk a little bit about a tool called policy-based network management that offers an example of the distance between the technology of the internet and how it's actually used. How do we manage something so complex and deliver on that trusted aspect of it, the robustness side. Finally, I'll weave into the topic, the talk a little bit about mobility and other non-traditional form factors as we move from a largely homogeneous, we have computer things talking to other computer things, and as we move to non-computer things, phones and pagers and all this other stuff, getting integrated into the network, how does that change what we do? Does it create a layer of intermediaries in there? I mean, what, what are the aspects the implications of this. Now I know you guys here have been talking about security. This is largely what brings you together. This is why SPAF has, has these seminars here. So what I will challenge you to do is as we walk through this context, try to keep in the back of your mind what could be the security implications of these things. Sometimes I'll be able to call them out, but other times they're not so obvious. And the challenge for the reader, if you will, is to keep in the back of your mind how will security affect this aspect of the net or how will this change in the net change the way that we apply security as we know it. 
I also have sprinkled through a few random slides on some headlines that you might see. We'll talk a little bit about statistics of cybercrime. This, as it has been said about the being the year of the network for about five years, this is apparently the year of voice over IP. And so we'll talk about that. We will talk just a little bit about peer-to-peer -peer networking, networking, grassroots networking, touch on Napster and Nutella and so on and see if we can understand why that's a bigger phenomenon than you, than you might even think. And of course we'll also talk about the emerging trend of ASPs, application service providers, and how that way of doing business is imposing some interesting policy and business connections over the technical connections or the physical connections that might make up the internet. So let's start first with your basic statistics. Now the thing that I love about internet statistics is they're all a hockey stick and they have been for at least the past 20 years that I've been involved in dealing with the internet. I guess I hate to admit it but I started using the internet when it was the ARPANET in 1974 and I was at MIT playing with Stanford's computers without Stanford's knowledge. Uh, sorry guys. And Basically what I found is the power of connectivity gets really interesting and so we started looking at statistics of different machines connecting up and we all got these great hockey stick predictions. Now for those of you who have anything to do with anybody in business, that's how all business plans look too. A great hockey stick. We're here, I'm going to go a little way, spend a lot of money and then I'm going to get a lot of money in return. So we look at these hockey sticks with skepticism. But in fact, in the internet, it seems to be holding true. And in fact, I wish I had the statistics to back this claim up, but, in f but what we've been seeing is the predictions have been consistently low, not aggressive enough. I took the, the actual statistics that I have here and I ran my spreadsheet's growth function on them. Map this curve, continue the, the projected growth, and it goes nuts. Well, maybe it goes nuts. It says we're going to have somewhere around a billion connected devices. That sounds unrealistic until you start thinking about how many you might have around your house. I have a CD-ROM player in my house. My CD-ROM player sucks compared to my PC. Why? Because every time I turn on my PC, it goes to the net, looks up the name of the CD that's on, looks up the song titles, might even bring the lyrics down, gets me a copy of the album art. I'd love it if my CD, raw, my CD player at home could do the same thing. Get just a little bit of information. I don't want it to be a full-fledged internet host, but I do want the value of being connected to be delivered to various appliances in the home. Does it make sense for my CD player to have a telephone jack or an ethernet jack or a cable modem jack on the back of it just for that function? No. But as I start getting connectivity around the home for other purposes, being able to extend a wire or to run a little wireless connection to it and have that delivered. If I get the cost down to this being kind of five bucks worth of costs or ten bucks worth of costs, this is really going to be worthwhile. So I would argue again this little prediction here that says we might be at almost a billion by the end of 2000 or by the beginning of 2005 may also be low, especially on your definition of internet hosts. So we also took a look at the most important attribute, money, and we looked at the internet generated revenue. Now this is only going through 2002. It too shows the hockey stick and shows that we're seeing some real money getting online. $1.2 trillion in a couple of years. That's almost start talking about real money. And so this trend of stuff getting more powerful and more valuable, by the way, this also follows the great security maxim that threat follows value. Now there's a famous bank robber, Willie Sutton, in the, around the turn of the century. He was asked, why do you rob banks? And his answer was, because that's where the money is. Well, this is the same story here on the internet. The money is there. It's starting to be an interesting place for people to go and try to get value accrued to themselves personally. We even looked at a small industry, the travel industry, the online travel industry, and we see that same trend. We're seeing that little swoop go up there. We're seeing that hockey stick. Now I also took a look at some of the broadband statistics here and I found them sort of intriguing. The narrow market of U.S. home offices is showing that the internet is really critical to their use, going from about a quarter of them in 96 to 
80% of them in 1999 actually using the internet, being connected, and we, the expectation is that we'll hit over 90% in about 2003 or 2004. The other interesting statistic there is that about the bulk of them are dial-up in 1999 and we're going to see more than half, around half of them hitting into broadband. This concept of the always on, always connected link for home users <coughs> is one of those important trends. Because what we also have learned from our ethnographic studies is families do some interesting things when they get always connected computing. The first thing they do is they change their usage pattern of the computer. When they're dial-up, every evening or every couple evenings, they go in the den and they sit down for half an hour to an hour and they do their stuff on the net. They sit down and they talk to their friends and they go fetch stock quotes and do whatever. When the computer is always on, because that's what they do, as soon as they get the connection always on, they start leaving the computer on all the time. And when the computer's always on, you walk up to it, you touch it, and you go get the piece of information you want, and you walk away, hit and run on the computer. So it goes from a half-hour session every day to about 10 little 5 to 10-minute sessions. Go get the information you want. Let me look at the morning commute. Let me look at the weather. Let me even have the, the Daily Me delivered that explains what important things to me are going to be shown. Today's news, my 9 a.m. meeting was canceled, I've got uh, congestion on my route to work, and what are school lunches that I don't have to pack my kid a lunch today. All the important stuff gets delivered in little bursts. People are using it differently. Now what does that mean? Well, that means two things. One is it's very vulnerable. It's sitting there and it's vulnerable to scans and it's vulnerable to all sorts of things that they might have believed they were protected for from because they were only on the net for half an hour. Later on we'll see some statistics that show that that might yet not even be true too. The other interesting thing is we're starting to get applications where the people are having information delivered to them. They are working to get online data brought to their machine rather than going out and searching for it. And we'll talk about that as an important trend in a little bit too. Finally, the other great statistics that I saw was the People's Republic of China and their internet usage. And I actually had the opportunity to present to some of the uh, ministers from the People's Republic of China recently. And when I showed these statistics, they said they were a little bit low. They thought that growth, growth was more than doubling every six months. Now, admittedly, they have pretty low penetration <laughs> at 16 million connections, but it's growing fast. I love the statistic that says about 22% of the traffic going in or out of the internet is originating or terminating in the Bay Area. I mean, it's a neat statistic. I don't know what we can do about it from a security point of view. Anybody who wants to suggest that that's a good target for, our, for bombs is probably not a good choice. I don't advocate that sort of thing. Now, I will also want to point out one other interesting set of statistics, which is nobody agrees. <laughs> I took a look at those e-commerce numbers and I found that they range by an order of magnitude. Although I will point out that they're still really big numbers. And I will also point out that the Direct Marketing Association at the bottom has every interest in having people still use mail and catalog shopping, not online shopping, so maybe their numbers are down anyway. That's their wishful thinking. Okay, if we talk about statistics and say things are going well, well, let's step back for a second and say, what does that mean? And I would argue the internet is changing. The internet of old was of connectivity fabric. That was all that it was about. Use the net to connect to Stanford or use the net to connect to some place. But in fact, it's moved to a place. I don't worry about where I am when I'm on the net. I just worry about what I can get. I go and in fact I fetch information by content. I go want to find out DSL, DSL providers, I go and do a search on one of the search engines to find out DSL and I get to see the intricacies of how it works as well as who's providing it. And I believe we're at the beginning of a transition to get more of the internet not only being a place in itself that you go to, but in fact we're starting to see the acceleration of the transition where the internet is delivering services to you that the internet is the source of stuff 
and that your glass on the internet, your interface, whether it be the computer or the flat panel in the kitchen or your pager or your cell phone, is stuff that gets delivered to you. And this internet as a fabric to deliver it is sort of how it works and interesting, but it's also the services that run on top of it that make the internet part of your life that really makes it different. And I don't know what all the implications are on the security plane of having my beach house call me up because it got flooding or because there was motion on one of the internal motion detectors and it also happened to call the local alarm company. Or it tells me the temperature's dropping below where it should be and I ought to take a trip to the beach in the next couple days before it freezes there. Well, is someone going to send fake messages from my beach house and I'm going to accidentally be stuck going to the beach when I didn't need to? Well, that's not quite the security Im impact that I'm worried about. But I am worried about somebody being able to watch the fact that I did go to the beach and decide that my house in the city is a great target. Now, we have a few myths of cyberspace and you guys probably know the, some of these better than I do. The first one is my favorite the myth that the IP address is an identity. And in fact, there's a thousand ways that that's not true. One of my favorites came from a law enforcement discussion that I had where they were explaining they had a court order to go find out who some suspect was talking to. But the suspect dialed in to a local ISP and got a dynamic IP address every time they dialed in. And in fact, the dial-in wasn't really to that ISP, it was to somebody who hosted modems for the ISP. And the ISP only ran a radius server and customer support desk. And oh, by the way, the mail was Yahoo Mail, if I remember correctly, so they were using the web to go get it. But the court order only said they were allowed to find out who he was sending messages to. And therefore, they had to be able to filter out only his mail and only the to and from address from a web page. So this whole thought that just having the IP address is enough is a terrible myth. Not to mention the fact that people tend to do tunneling protocols, whether they mean to or not, maybe going through proxies, or whether they're going on purpose to anonymizers or whether they're VPNing into a corporate net which then sends them through a proxy out. I mean, there's lots and lots of different ways that people are connecting to the net where the IP address you see on the outside of an in-transit packet isn't the information that you needed or wanted. Now, the second myth is that there is an internet architecture. We've got to remember, and you've probably heard it a thousand times from all your professors, that the internet is a network of networks. And the importance of the word internet is the fact that each network has its own policies and the only thing that is required for them to connect to the internet itself is to find somebody whose policy will allow them to connect to another company and who can share the common technical infrastructure of IP. Well, since most of the equipment you can buy today is capable of speaking IP, this gets you into the to the challenging area of it's a simple matter of business or a simple matter of money and that's all that it takes. So we have people with all kinds of different policies that are established as appropriate for their network but you can also share traffic because they share a common technical infrastructure. There isn't a master of the internet and in fact the closest thing we get is the IETF which sets through IANA certain port numbers that we at least have to agree on or it makes it tougher to communicate. And even those are just a matter of agreement. So if I say I want to run an FTP server, most people expect to come in on port 21 to go and talk to it. But I can run it up on port 2000 and anybody who knows that it's on port 2000 can go find it or anybody who's willing to scan all my ports. It's not cast in stone. And this is very, very hard for people in law enforcement and people who don't come from a technical background who've been looking at all of this variability to get through their heads because they keep funding, falling back on, the, on other models that say, oh, okay, but at least if you get this piece of information, that's hard and fast and always true, right? Because in fact, the IP address and the architecture may be such that people can change it and say they're from any IP address they want. 
The other myth is all you need to do is capture the packets. And we, we touched on this just a second ago, which basically says there's lots of things you can tunnel inside each other. I was part of a group that was looking at CALEA, the Common Access for Law Enforcement uh, something, A. <laughs> all the A's in law enforcement. Assistance, thank you. Which is basically the legislation that allows, under certain circumstances, the government, or law enforcement specifically, to be able to intercept telephone calls when they have the appropriate court authorization. And it goes through all sorts of details. One of the things we were talking about is, how would I take even a voice over IP phone call and legitimately intercept the information that's in there? And the problem is, there's a thousand different ways that people are sending voice across the net. There's, in fact, three relatively standard ways that you might choose to set up a voice over IP call with H323 or Megaco or um, SIP. And in fact, each of these different protocols may or may not have somebody in the middle who sets up the call. It might be an end-to-end -end call. You might be at a website, say, click to talk, downloads a Java applet that can decode the app, decode the content, and play it to your speaker. So the way that you actually think things ought to work and the way that they get built up, including nested layers of, of content, is, is very different. So we've been watching a few of the key trends, some of the things I'm more interested in. The first one is this thing we call overlay networks. And we'll talk about it in a second here. What I will point out is that overlay networks are using the internet protocols at least, if not some of the internet backbone itself, but overlaying special functions on top of it. Maybe a voice over IP network that's trying to do telephony and therefore they are taking and engineering the network so that it won't have the latency or jitter or any of the other problems if you're, as you'd find going over the real network. Or maybe their security overlays, ANX, which is a automotive network exchange is all of the large car companies in the entire supply chain are using IPsec to to create secure communications over the internet and using a whole credential management hierarchy so that you can become after signing appropriate contracts an active member of this supply chain and it's an overlay network I can't as an internet connected person do it but I don't have to buy a new connection to participate. I just have to get into the contractual relationships. The other point here is we're seeing some interesting trends in faster and faster silicon. And we hit a new threshold about a year ago, which is essentially we can now do something called programmable silicon in the fast path. People who've been developing devices that touch network packets, routers, switches, hubs, have been working on speed, 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 speed. And so they're using ASICs, they're using custom silicon, custom chips to be able to make it so that they can move the packets as fast as possible. Well, unfortunately, ASICs have about an 18-month design cycle between design and shipping product. We finally have network processors fast enough to allow us to take a sort of general purpose, a network-oriented processor, but a programmable processor, and have it manage and touch the packets and do it at wire speeds. We got stuff in our labs running at OC192 and still touching every single packet. Now, what could I do with that? What might be interesting? First of all, why would I develop it? Well, I need flexibility. New protocols coming along, new things like quality of service and so on. But what would I as a security person want to do with this? What could I do with a programmable network that I could release a little program into? and with the appropriate authorization, be able to do things like upgrade my entire enterprise network to be able to support new protocols, quality of service. We've had quality of service protocols like RSVP for years. They've been actually shipping inside routers for the last three years, and it took pulling the teeth of the companies that actually build those routers and convincing the three people on the planet who are allowed to write code that goes into those ASICs to be able to deal with getting this quality of service capability there. But nobody's turned it on. I can't go out and go to UUNet and say, I'd like an RSVP enabled network, please. Now maybe they'll be able to do it soon. 
and they're all talking about little private services. But as a company, I'm very conservative. Going back to that trusted network, I want it reliable. And this code is notoriously terribly buggy. And so we are seeing a great delay in getting any of this stuff rolled out. Programmable silicon might give me the opportunity to control the, the boxes in my sphere and be able to try stuff, bring it up, and be able to fail back because I can program things at the fast path. I don't have a performance impact. We also were seeing manageability be the key stumbling block. Just like rolling out new services because things don't get reliability, we're seeing that as a key stumbling block to people rolling out security. And I'll tell you a little bit later about my, my little trip to IT and how I wanted to see IPsec turned on broadly. Suffice it to say that manageability has been the big key. In fact, my group developed an IPsec stack as a research vehicle and partly to go into some of our products. We went to the IPsec bake-offs and worked with all the companies, the top engineers who were developing this on a daily basis. And what did they spend 80% of their time doing? Having two experts, well, okay, drinking, but after that, having two experts sit down and try to get their boxes configured. These are guys that knew what every single setting meant, what every bit meant. And they spent all their time trying to say, oh, you know what, I forgot to do this, and let me turn it this way. And they expect real people or real network administrators, if they are real people, to try to use this. Well, that seems to be a huge pushback. We don't have the tools to allow people to manage this. We are seeing voice over IP. This is the year of voice over IP. It's got a lot of interesting capabilities coming along with it. Voice over IP to me basically says the voice network and the IP network are going to be connected together. We're going to do all sorts of really interesting things. It reduces cost. It allows us to move to a common infrastructure. It allows us to do things like soft PBXs that are just PCs or just computers programmed in and you can't tell the difference. Small offices are pulling a single wire that runs IP and they can run their telephone and they can run their fax and they can run five different lines all over the same little piece of wire. So this has huge potential in the edge of the network. It also has huge potential in the backbone. If you buy one of those prepaid phone cards, especially from the no-name phone companies, what you're getting is a local number that dials into some box that will digitize your voice and send it across the internet and hop off as near as possible to quote the long distance spot that you went to. And the reason I say the no-name companies because the no-name companies are running this over the internet itself. They're not running over managed sub-segments or overlay networks. You get sort of low quality, but what the heck, it was cheap. And it's almost reasonable. And the last thing, and we'll talk about this a little bit, is the mobility and how it affects the internet. And I mean mobile by strange devices, but I also mean mobile by one device being connected multiple times or multiple ways to the internet, including dynamically changing connections as I move from one cell to another, or as I take my wireless connection and plug it into a hardwired network connection and I expect everything to keep working. And yes, mobile IP sounds like it's a wonderful thing and I'm not the advocate of mobile IP. It may happen, but we, do, we can do other solutions in this space and we're going to see solutions, complete solutions that solve particular problems that may or may not eventually go to layers of a general solution like mobile IP. But people are trying to do real applications that allow them to fetch their email over all sorts of devices. Okay, let's talk for just a second about how the internet is not as it seems. And it's fairly simple here. You dial a local phone number, you think you're calling into your ISP, and your ISP is handling everything you need, including the connectivity to your local email, as well as your connectivity to the internet. And then if you go when you want to surf, you might go across the internet and hit some website, right? Pretty cool. Well, on two layers at least, that's not quite accurate. Most likely when you call an ISP, your call is being routed to a megapop. Basically through a bunch of vagaries in US laws and US pricing, these competitive local exchange carriers have a deal where the 
incumbent local exchange carrier, your local phone company, the guy you bought service from, must connect up to the CLEX and allow them to carry traffic. And through something that the ILEX really pushed for, so the FCC gave it to them, and now they're complaining about, in fact, if the CLEC is only taking incoming calls, the ILEX have to pay them for it. Because there's supposed to be this balance of payments. But in fact, they get paid for every call they take. Nice deal, huh? Now, these CLECs are delivering data at bulk rates to these megapups, where there's big, huge racks of modems. And these racks of modems are demuxing the calls. And when you call in and you will do a login to your local ISP, in fact, the, the login and passwords being dumped into Radius, sent down a Radius server to perhaps your local ISP by some national, national service provider. So MCI or UUNet or Sprint or any one of these big guys is running a megapop and providing the front end for your local ISP who's running local ads, answers the phone when you call, and collects money. Furthermore, when you actually try to connect to the net, chances are very good that you probably went through a proxy and maybe aren't even connected to the website that you wanted after all. You might be redirected to a mirror, either purpose, like you get a list of, I want to download this thing, are you in Saudi Arabia or America or wherever, and you know, go pick one. Or indirectly with technology like Akamai has, where you might get the web page, the master HTML from the target site, but it's been modified so that it uses a DNS lookup of Akamai and then some identifying things so that all of the graphics on the page get redirected by Akamai's DNS server to be just some local mirror of the content. So that the rest of the page gets drawn from someplace on the networks, at least, as close to you. And in fact, even when you hit the website, not, all, not as all as it seems, you most likely hit a load balancer. And in fact, let's say you're doing some electronic transaction and you've got an SSL connection. In many cases, the SSL connection is terminated by the load balancer and the rest of the transactions carried on in the clear behind the load balancer to one of the 20 different servers that they're running in their little server farm. Or maybe they've outsourced the transaction processing to another company who's acting as an application service provider behind the scenes and doing their banking for them or whatever. It's not nearly as simple as you might dream that you're surfing the net. There are all sorts of interesting companies with all sorts of business, businesses solving parts of the problem. And it's getting worse, not better. I didn't throw in network address translation and other such neat features to muddy the waters more. I talked about overlay networks a minute ago. I will point out that they break, in my mind, into these three models. We talked about performance and security. The third one that's interesting is technology. So there are people who are overlaying internet connectivity across weird transports, across satellite, which has huge delays and therefore TCP might time out, or wireless access protocol, where you want to filter out a bunch of the data and have a much more efficient protocol at least in second-generation wireless where the, the speeds are slow. So we're seeing these interesting overlays. And the bottom line is people are doing it because there's a business in making something that's almost possible come true across the Internet because the Internet can't quite do what we want. Application service providers, we talked about an example of somebody who's handling your back office and you're collecting money for you. There's two reasons they exist. One is we can see advances in network technology that allow this to happen transparently. We see businesses wanting to get value. I mean, they want to be in the service space and they want to focus on the thing they're good at. Inktomi is a great example of this. Used to be if you went to Yahoo and entered a search criteria, the search was compressed and sent across a leased line to Inktomi's search engine. Inktomi went, queried its database, had lots of cool parallel processing techniques and they walked the webs at night and then they took a compressed version of the results and sent it back to Yahoo who reformatted the page to look in the Yahoo look and feel. You didn't know this was going on, that was just what was happening. So they're a great example of an application service provider. They specialize in something that's hard for other people to get into. 
We also are seeing on the demand side the trend for application service providers because there aren't enough experts. And we're going to see this move into every phase of the net. We are seeing a world which is probably only paralleled by the world we saw with the telephone providers. People were doing those hockey sticks on telephone connectivity and they made the prediction that in 10 years, which was by the, by the 1920s, every man, woman, and child would have to be a telephone operator at the current rate. And in fact, we are. We dial all the numbers. Well, we're seeing similar things in IT, that every person who's ever touched a computer will have to be in charge of IT, because that's how many people at the current growth rates we're going to need to do electronic commerce. Well, I think, again, this is partially going to be true, but there may be economies of scale where we outsource things to highly leveraged, talented individuals with one or two or three layers of computing power at, in between them and the end problem, where they might be able to get economies of scale to solve narrow, specific problems. Okay, now we could argue that the Internet's won. Peter Drecker's right. But if the internet is it, then why, what else do we need? Why aren't we done? Well, the first thing is that the internet works for one reason. You had to agree on something. And what we agreed on was the IP packet format. And the strength of the single agreement on what an internet protocol packet looks like gives us all sorts of cool benefits. The first is you can run the internet protocol over all sorts of interesting transport types and interesting media. So I can run it over Ethernet and Sonnen and all this other cool stuff. The other thing that the Internet Protocol allows me to do is to run all sorts of interesting applications, high-level things like email and FTP and so on, and even very esoteric things like ERP, which is not so esoteric. This is how people run their business. So, uh, RP stands for resource planning. I forgot what the E stands for. Enterprise. Excuse me? Enterprise. Enterprise, thank you. And we can run cool stuff on top of it. We can even insert middleware layers. I can put a security layer in. I can put an accounting layer in. I can put all sorts of cool stuff. And the only people who need to agree is both ends of the connection. I don't need to go to the IETF to change my security. I don't need to go and do any of these things. It's just a simple agreement of, you need it, I got it. If we can agree on how you get it, we're going to be communicating. And I even can do this with the transport layer stuff, the things that we all know and hold dear, like TCP and UDP. We can add new protocols. RTP was added on top of UDP. RTP stands for Real-Time Transport Protocol. What is it? It's one simple thing. It adds, basically sticks a timestamp in front of encoded audio or video or any other real-time data and puts a group identifier so that you can put multiple audio streams together or synchronize an audio and a video stream so you know what they mean. But it doesn't do much more than that. RTP is very lightweight, very special purpose, and it happens to be an IETF standard, but people have been running RTP long before it was an IETF standard. We just had to agree this is how we're going to interpret it. It's very flexible. But what IP offers you is an unreliable, connectionless delivery, best effort delivery. Think of it as a postcard. I can take some interesting piece of content, write it in pieces on postcards, stick them all in the mail, and maybe my sister in California will get them. And she may, if I'm clever and number this one of four, two of four, three of four, four of four, she might even realize she didn't get number three. And if she waits a week, because that's the timeout period, she may send me back something and says, hey, by the way, I didn't get number three. And if I was clever enough, knowing that she was going to send me an acknowledgement, I'd keep a copy of all four of them. And when she said she didn't get number three, I'd send it to her. That's how TCP works. It works on top of this unreliable transport. But the problem is we've got a number of capabilities out here that we'd like to run across the net that can't stand the vagaries and jitter and latency and all the other magic words that say this thing works most of the time. They have different application trade-offs. And what we need to do is move from our best effort network to something that is more reliable and more robust and in certain cases allows you to ask for better delivery char characteristics. It will have quality of service built in. 
it will give you some amount of trust in the infrastructure. And it will also give you the ability to manage the traffic, to engineer it, to make it something production, to get that reliability up to the level that you need. And we might use tools like secure protocols, we might use virtual private networks as a thing I can build. But this is where I think the proactive trusted internet is going to be built. It's going to be built on top of internet protocols, but we're going to get new services added in. And the interesting thing is we're going to move to a world of application-aware networks, where the network says, oh, this is video traffic, I know how to handle that. And network-aware applications, where the application will say, I'm going to send some video and it's going to be roughly this big and fat, therefore please give me the services appropriate to that video. Which means we've got to change the infrastructure and we've got to change the apps, and that's heavy lifting. But what we're going to do is change them individually and we're going to find that we move an inch at a time to get the services we need and it's the interesting overlay networks that are showing us the way that there's actually money to be made in solving these problems. Let me tell you what I see the, the proactive trusted internet being able to deliver and let me take you a, a little bit into the future here. Nordstrom is well known for pampering customers, smothering them with love if you will. Nordstrom will give you a personal shopper who will walk around the store with you and help you pick shoes that match the belt, that match the pants, that match the shirt that you just got. They'll carry it for you. They want to do the same on the net. So let's say I'm an ADSL user and I've got a 256K connection to the internet and I surf on over to the Nordstrom site. Now Nordstrom in fact wants to do this. They want to up my connection to one megabit per second while I'm on their site so I get a much better experience. So I can take that graphical object with me wearing that shirt and turn it around and see what it looks like. Look at it in high res, look at it walk across the screen, look at it do all sorts of cool things and you know what, I'm going to want to go back to that Nordstrom site every time. And in fact because I've paid them money and because I keep coming back to their site, I get put on the less lightly loaded, or the more lightly loaded servers. And when I'm in the middle of paying, boy, you can bet that thing will be so snappy and so responsive that this will be the place I would not shop anywhere else. This is the greatest. Now, I don't have a way to deliver that yet. I don't have the equivalent of a collect call where Nordstrom can tell its ISP to tell the national service provider to tell my ISP to bump me up to one megabit only for their traffic for only the duration of while I'm on the site. And oh, by the way, can they reliably know that it's me and I'm the one who actually paid money last time and so on. We got a bunch of issues kind of swept underneath the rug here. Many of them security issues. But the need or the desire is still there. That's the vision of having a proactive network, of having a network that you can interact with and get the level of service and the capabilities and the comp components that you want. One of the tools to getting us there, solving that management problem, is called policy-based management. And it's, it is not everything you think it is, and it's a few more things that you think it's not. Policy is very simply stated a way to apply business rules to network traffic. Why do I care? We had some engineers who really liked to play one of these immersive games, play Quake, Doom, pick your, pick your favorite, and they would like to play it at night. They felt they were going to help everybody. The problem was they were playing it at night while the nightly backups were going across the net. And the nightly backups went from taking eight hours, taking about 14 hours, which means that we opened our doors to online traffic about 11 o'clock in the morning. We changed our priorities so that the business rules were the backups finish in eight hours. You guys playing in the background can do whatever you want, but the backups are going to finish. And when that traffic got priority, it went to eight hours and it was no problem. There are business reasons for actually controlling quality of service. It's not all about watching video and making sure audio is kind of fun. And this is what policy-based management can allow us to do. It's a simple thing to create, which is basically there's somebody who has to describe what the policies are. They get punched into some, let's call them a policy server. And that policy server knows enough about the net to know which devices need to be configured in which ways, how some devices speak this language and another other ones speak that language, and even to the point where a device can get some traffic that it doesn't know about and go up and ask the server, hey, how am I supposed to deal with this? And have the server punch back down what the rules are for that traffic. Now, we have a piece of this in place. 
have policy consoles and policy servers that will allow me to specify in the generic form this protocol with this port number gets this priority. And I can say this, this router, this router, and this router gets it. And it might even be three different manufacturers routers. And I've got a little layer that knows how to speak each one of them. But I don't have the layer that knows the topology. I don't have the layer that knows how to translate business rules to network configuration rules. It's all done by humans right now, which means it won't scale. So to get to the scalable, reliable, robust network, we've got to get the humans out of at least the critical path in the net. And policy-based management is just one example of something that's going to head us in that direction. We also, with this network delivering services to us, are going to get incredibly tightly defined affinity groups. It's not a matter of 500 channels, it's a matter of 500 million channels. Customized, personalized, tailored. There's a friend of mine who is one of the 20 people who collects camouflage from all over the world. He comes to work in it once in a while and is very proud of his South African Rhodesian excursion camouflage that he wears. And he and the other 19 guys are in constant contact with each other. He knows one guy who seems to find lots of things that fall off the back of military trucks. And <laughs> this is the kind of affinity group that's out there. People who have shared interests who NBC and ABC and CBS isn't going to try and create the camouflage channel for him. But the technology that's out there today, including Napster and Nutella and Freenet and all of the other peer-to-peer -peer technologies, allow me to get to this really interesting place where nothing is so strange as to there's not a market for it, so I won't go there. I think we move from least common denominator and have the potential to move to every person sets their own agenda. And this gets really interesting. What's also interesting about it from a security point of view is if you have peer-to-peer -peer networking that allows you to interact with people that you want, you also have what I call ancillary use of security. What I do in the telephone world is I pick up the phone and I dial and talk. I don't turn the phone off and on. It's ancillary with my use of the phone. Well, security in this little world of virtual communities is the same thing. I don't take and create keys and hand them out to people. But if I hand somebody a cookie and say, join my community, and I validate them through my interaction inside the community or through my peers inside the community, and if I get the tools that allow this to happen automatically over these overlay networks, these teeny, tiny peer-to-peer -peer affinity based networks. I have the potential and the reasoning that I want to protect the traffic and make my community exclusive except for anybody who's in the community can add their friends to it. And each community builds its own rules but the need for authentication and the need for protection, confidentiality, encryption technologies starts to become really interesting and, and vital. XML is important. No, uh, there's probably more to say about XML. The most important thing about XML is it allows computers to read web pages, which allows us to exchange data in all sorts of ways that were never anticipated by the web page designer. And that's why I think it's really interesting and important. MP3, I am not a Metallica fan, so I am not trying to get Metallica music out. I, I, I do have a serious problem with people stealing legitimately copyrighted information. I'm not an intellectual property lawyer. I don't play one on TV. I used to know one, but he moved. I will point out that this affinity group applies very much in the music space. That there are bands that didn't have a way to reach their audiences before because they weren't mass market. And that it's one way to play this that the music business isn't tuned to this kind of a distribution mechanism. Now, I could make a case if I thought they were big bad companies that they're trying to lock everybody out. But in fact, they're trying to protect their legitimate investment. The technologies are becoming available to allow them to do it. But the music industry as we know it today is going to get turned on its ear by the market. The internet will accelerate that. We're also going to see the emergence of some interesting technologies that allow content protection, legitimately. 
cool technologies like some of you are working on with tamper resistance and so on. But MP3 hit an interesting sweet spot, which was the compression quality was good enough that you'd actually be interested in listening to this compressed audio. But the compression capability was, was good enough that the size was small enough to send it over telephone dial-up lines or at least over low-speed broadband connections. So the people are actually sharing music. This is kind of instigating one of the other interesting trends, which is the debate is not a technology debate, even though it's being couched as one. It's a public policy debate. Just like this whole carnivore thing is not about the technology of carnivore, it's revisiting the public policy of privacy and who is allowed to, under what authority and circumstances, listen in. And that's what I think is going to be really interesting over the next few years, is the public policy changes that we'll see. I touched real briefly on a couple of crime statistics here. One is the Defense Inf Institute for S Security Analysis. I think that's what they are. Um, they were attacking, they attack systems for the military. Kind of cool stuff. The real interesting statistic was only one out of 150 of their attacks was even noticed. Now, some people say 80% of all internet-based attacks go unreported or unnoticed or, you know, it happens all the time. Now, most statistics are made up, so I don't have any, any belief in that. But this was kind of disturbing. Plus the fact these guys get in 65% of the time. This isn't quite what you'd hope. So we decided to take a look at a couple of our home network connections. A friend of mine, Dave Oxsmith, had a cable modem that he installed in his house and after having it for a month or two, he decided to put some fairly, he put a firewall in and he said, well, I wonder what's going on outside the firewall. So we instrumented it. He took a look and in the first week he found 250 different attacks on his system. Now, these are the, the virtual world equivalent of somebody walking around your house and testing every door and window to see if they're open. Is it illegal? Probably not. Do you want it to happen? I don't think so. And there were some interesting things. Somebody tried to put the distributed denial of service, the Trinu, on his system. And people were looking to see if it was misconfigured. I did the same thing on my DSL modem. Now, it's possible my system was misconfigured because the numbers are pretty high, but I got a very steady rate of one packet every two and a half seconds on average of somebody doing something they shouldn't be doing on my home network. They're scanning subnet 10.0.0.1.2.3.4 and doing reverse ARPs to see if there's any machine there. And if it found a machine, it was going and looking to see if back orifice was installed and a few other things. Now, I don't consider that neighborly behavior. We also found that the dial-up users were getting six attacks an hour with the two or three friends of ours that we had instrumented also. In fact, we said, well, gee, maybe somebody would care about this. Is this a significant amount of bandwidth? And when we looked in the cable subnets, 12% of the traffic was malicious. Kids attacking each other, maybe. People scanning systems. In fact, I talked to our Intel IT people, and they said, ah, it's a pretty good number. It's a little low. About 20% of the traffic that goes into Intel Corporation's inbound network is malicious traffic. It is so much that we log it, but we only actually look at the egregious stuff and go after rare people. All the rest of it, we just block and let it fall on the floor. And it's port scans and firewall configuration tests and all sorts of things. I'll tell you quickly about my visit to IT. I expected to find the white-coated people in the back room, and in fact what I found was some terribly overworked professionals who are doing their absolute best holding on with their fingers, and this is where that statistic I quoted earlier about we're going to run out of IT trained professionals real soon now. So I said to them, hey, I'm from the security team. What if I encrypt all your traffic? And they go, oh, no, don't do that. It's terrible. And I said, why? And the answer was because it breaks everything we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I got to debug networks. I've got to be able to track the traffic. I've got to be able to predict what are my new trends and be able to, to go convince management that I need more money. And it, it basically says I can't even take my nightly backups and give them higher priority. I don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. It'll break the infrastructure I do have and I don't have the infrastructure to manage it. 
And even with Windows 2000, which is deeply penetrating into corporations, having one interesting feature, which is it has IPsec built in, but the more interesting feature of that is it's built in to be centrally administered. So I don't have to have end users typing in 64-bit keys or anything like that. It's all handled from one spot. If the administrator says, hey, we're all going to talk encrypted now, we do. But even that's not getting turned on. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg as to why there's resistance against all these security technologies that we have. Because the real people can't use them in their current form. We've been watching for other devices, and this is just an interesting slide that showed that 80% of the DRAMs are going into embedded things. Not just what you and I would think of as computers, but all sorts of weird stuff. And the trend is getting worse, or getting more interesting. Worse only from Intel's point of view. <laughs> Although Intel sells processors into other things too, so we like this. I will also point out that the wireless space gets real interesting and there's tons of really big players all converging on that spot. I don't predict a winner, I don't know who it's going to be, but I do know that wireless is going to give me two things. One is a lot more connected nodes and forces my network to be able to deal with incapable as well as very capable devices with either bridges between them or with content specifically aimed at the incapable devices. The other thing that wireless gives me is a great awareness that connectivity is now part of everybody's life. And, it, and we're getting all these new and interesting services that are bridging physical world and virtual world. And I now go get pages from computers that I set up. Eventually they'll just come unbid. Maybe I won't call those numbers. The other, the other trend that's interesting is IPv6. I don't predict that there's an answer, that IPv6 is the answer, but I do see two trends that make me believe, finally, because I've been a non-believer, that it's going to happen. Number one, these wireless devices. going to push us over the edge on IP addresses because you've got to be able to get to that device, which means it needs to have an address that you can get to. And either we create a complete overlay network with new addresses that get mapped into current IP addresses, or we just move to IPv6. The other thing is China. China has made the commitment that they will go to an IPv6 backbone. It's the only way they're going to get enough address space to come close to connecting their country. And all the rest of the non-US countries are screaming for address space. We don't have it. I talked about programmable networks. This is what we call proactive networks. I don't have anything more to say on it other than it'll be really cool when it happens and I think the hackers are going to think that too. <laughs> um, I stole this slide from Vint Cerf. If we're going to talk futures, let's talk about the interplanetary internet. Basically, the Mars explorers are going to start with a satellite network that runs IP and allows them to communicate and do GPS and all sorts of other cool stuff. But the challenge is, how do you run TCP between two networks when you've got a six-hour delay? Most TCP protocols time out in that window. <laughs> so they're looking at new protocols. What's appropriate for that? Do you have to do it up at the app layer? Or is there a way to deliver stuff? And VintSurf is actually working actively in this, and this is legitimate. The Mars mission plan has this there. They're actually going to put the satellites up soon. And they think they're going to have a stable interplanetary backbone by 2040. Right. I'm going to be logging on to that. Oops. I skipped one thing. No, I didn't. Oh good, I had another slide, but I forgot it. <laughs> so here's the key trends. We talked a little about the internet, not as it seems. The internet is constantly changing. It's layer over layer over layer of stuff. We're moving toward a proactive, trusted internet. Policy-based network management is just one piece, but it gives you an idea of the tip of that iceberg as to why manageability is key. And mobility and non-traditional form factors are going to be absolutely essential in seeing us move to what this new generation is. The real truth is the network is changing every day and what are important protocols today may be tiny tomorrow, but there's really interesting trends and we can't predict where they're going, but we can see the shift that they're going to have. So we're committed to be a major part of it. I work for Intel, I'm having great fun doing it. It's a neat place and a great time to be alive.
So, are there any questions? You wowed him. I wowed you. <laughs> yes? One question might be, you'd uh, envisioned quality of service being a, a major part of the of tomorrow's internet uh, due to the demand placed on it by, uh, demand placed on the network by certain very high volume uh, types of traffic. Um, is it possible that by the time that need ever arose, the bandwidth would be such that we wouldn't need the management of the quality of service? So the question, I guess these guys get the questions? Um, you can repeat. Okay. Well, the question, I mean, the short form of the question, because I can then tilt it toward my answer. <laughs> short form of the question is, do we need, it, can we build out enough bandwidth so that quality of service guarantees as protocols or all this stuff won't be needed? Right. And the truth is there's always going to be resource management that's required, and it happens at all different layers of the net. It's possible that we could over-provision in certain areas. We're seeing even with gigabit ethernet that we're playing with, with our backbone, that we have serious quality of service problems. It's, it's a matter of, I can't put enough bandwidth in place so that some two things really, really big isn't gonna have one more important than another and that they're not gonna affect each other. If we did it on the road system and there was a super highway everywhere, some places there's going to be not a big enough highway, so you're going to have to go through a bottleneck. We could reduce our traffic problem, of course, reduce our available land problem too. So I don't, I don't think we're ever going to get past needing it. Other questions? Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you.